I think it's very important to get educated about how we got into this moment so that we can be best informed how to act with more knowledge and really find out where is our heart taking us? What do we feel passionate about? What is the earth calling us to do? Because that's where we're going to have the energy to add in our peace. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, we're going to explore the stories that we know in our bones to be true, as we're joined by the incredible activist, thought leader, and author of The Story in Our Bones, How Worldviews and Climate Justice Can Remake a World in Crisis by Osprey Oriel Lake. Osprey is the founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, We Can. She works internationally with grassroots BIPOC and indigenous leaders, policymakers, and diverse coalitions to build climate justice, resilient communities, and a just transition to a decentralized, democratized, clean energy future. She sits on the executive committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and on the steering committee for the Fossil-Free Non-Proliferation Treaty, something you've heard about as we interviewed Sephora Berman on this show. Osprey's writing about climate justice, relationships with nature, women in leadership, and other topics have been featured in all sorts of publications, from The Guardian to Earth Island Journal, The Ecologist, Ms. Magazine, and many others. She is the author of the award-winning book, Uprisings for Earth, Reconnecting with Nature. Osprey holds an MA in Culture and Environmental Studies from Holy Names University in Oakland and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area on Coast Muwak lands. Osprey Oriel Lake, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here with you. Let's talk about the topic of the moment as we get started here, the story in our bones. Now, I would love for you to talk about this call to action, this invitation to remake the world. You really don't mince words here. You point to the deplorable acts of humanity, the assassinations of climate activists, and many other things throughout its pages to really, I think, make those readers more aware of our present situation. So I wanted to know why you chose to write this work and release it now in 2024. Thank you for that good description. On a daily basis at the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, our organization deals with a wide range of issues, everything from uh, reforestation to protecting old growth forests in different regions of the world. We do a lot of work around stopping fossil fuel expansion and extraction. We do a lot of work in advocacy and policy work and research and producing reports. We do a lot of work around food security, food sovereignty, and indigenous rights. So there's quite a wide range of work we're doing that are immediate actions to stop harms and also build the beautiful world that we know we are summing forward right now. But when I got into this book, I wanted to look upstream and have a very deep analysis that of course, I've shared with many colleagues and it comes out of the climate justice movement and indigenous rights movements and many others to get at this question of how did we get into this moment of what some scholars are calling a polycrisis, where we're looking at an economic crisis, 
racism, colonization, patriarchy, a economic system based on endless economic growth, capitalism. And so I wanted to look at how can we dismantle some of these systems, which means we have to understand them and take a deep dive into what they are and where do they come from, while at the same time also honoring that while we're dismantling harmful systems of oppression that are impacting both social and ecological issues, also going back and seeing in our own ancestries where we had healthy relationships and lived in harmony with the land, and not from some romanticized point of view, but actually looking at some traditional knowledge, looking at some of the ways in which we had a different worldview about nature and each other than we do today. So there's also the beauty of also not only dismantling current structures, but reclaiming and rescuing important knowledge systems that we have really considered to be undervalued or not important anymore, just to name some like our connection to nature and a narrative around our inseparable relationship to the web of life. These kinds of things that would lead to very different outcomes in our political and cultural and social arenas. You know, this is going to touch back on some content that we're covering over the course of either coming episodes or have very recently. Our connection to nature is something, to nature in particular, is something we talk about. I am interviewing this one is definitely recommended reading, but Dr. Wallace J. Nichols goes by J about this blue mind concept and really understanding our connection to water and without water, there is no life. But also without something as devastating as fire, there could be no real ecosystem balance. One of the things I think being in California, you've probably often thought about, as have I, that we had lost quite a bit of this indigenous knowledge about forest management even, and ablation of potential fires by managing those forests. How do you see us really leveraging this indigenous knowledge in today's world so that we can stop that mispoint and ultimately come out of it better society? One of the things I'm really interested in and is a big, I'm a big advocate for is indigenous rights and centering indigenous knowledge and indigenous peoples in climate solutions and environmental solutions. I think it's absolutely critical. So when we look um, statistically at what's going on, 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth, 80% is in the hands and lands of indigenous peoples. So this is paramount for us to recognize as we're looking at the escalating climate crisis and what we're experiencing, droughts and floods and fires, as you mentioned, as well as environmental degradation overall, that when we're talking about our forests all over the world, water, land, the biodiversity itself. We're talking a lot about indigenous territories and lands. And so it really begins with first and foremost, recognizing if we're not in our homelands historically, whose indigenous lands are we on? And how can we really know and learn and respect the indigenous territories we're in. I'm in Coast Miwok territories, Coast Miwok lands. How can I build a relationship with the indigenous leaders that are here and really help and support the initiatives that they have? So I think it's a time for us who are settlers in other people's lands, or maybe not in our own homelands, to sit at the feet of indigenous peoples and really listen and learn from people who have millennium of understanding of the ecosystems where we live um, at every level, ecologically, spiritually, culturally, 
uh, politically in terms of governance systems have this deep integrated relationship with the land. So some of this is learning technical information like traditional ecological knowledge, as you mentioned around these fires that were burned to to really keep down the underbrush and to make sure that there weren't huge blazes like we see now. Some of that is because we have not been tending to the land as Indigenous peoples have done for years in forest lands, but also it's further impact by the climate crisis and drought in the forest. So these things together are kind of colliding. So there's technical information, but I think it's also more than that. I think it's also about respecting worldviews and knowledge and rights of Indigenous peoples. So we don't set up an extractive relationship once again with Indigenous peoples, that we can come at it in a way of being good listeners and also following their leadership. I would just mention one other thing to answer your question, which I think is really important that people, many people don't realize there's something that you, that the United Nations passed called the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which many countries all over the world have adopted, which has also a specific right called free, prior and informed consent, which means that Indigenous people all over the world have the right to be informed about uh, projects that are coming into their territories, whether that's fossil fuel extraction, mining, or other sorts of extraction, and that Indigenous people not only need to be consulted with, but ultimately give consent or not if that project will be followed through on. And I think one of the biggest struggles we have and we work with every day at WeCan is how do we really support Indigenous people in exercising this right? Because even though they might say, no, we don't want this fossil fuel pipeline coming through our land, that right to say no is not being respected by corporations, by governments or financial institutions. So to get back to your question, you know, one of the things we can do is learn from Indigenous peoples and their incredibly profound traditional ecological knowledge based upon years and years of living in harmony with their lands, but also respecting their rights and getting engaged in their real-time struggles to protect their lands. I mean, those who know about the Dakota Access Pipeline all know that that is a key example of a complete failure where we did not respect the wishes, the Indigenous peoples, and, and the true, I mean, there is no owner of the land, but the stewards of that land for generations. So I think sometimes this, the risk that we're in is that, like you said, their positions aren't respected, the authority that they would have via this UN resolution isn't respected. And then we are in this kind of a stalemate where it just happens anyways. So, I mean, what do you see changing? And I guess that is a broad question, but a hopeful question, because at the same time that we see that there was a failure here, is there a sign that we could be entering a period in the United States specifically where we do see the wishes of these local peoples, these indigenous peoples, ultimately respected? Well, I think the United States is a really hard example, honestly, because I think that the United States does not have a great record on human rights or indigenous rights, even though we laud and appear to have a narrative that we are. Give you an example. I was very honored to participate in a divestment delegation with a really wonderful Diné or Navajo woman leader, Michelle Cook. We had both been out at Standing Rock quite a bit during the resistance movement. And then there was a move to create actions with the financiers of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so we partnered and led Indigenous women divestment delegations to get banks 
and different financial institutions to divest from Decred Access Pipeline. And we went to Europe and we went to European banks in Switzerland, in Germany, in Norway, because they have a higher human rights standard. And we were one of the few groups that actually got divestments, hundreds of millions of dollars taken off the table away from the Dakota Access Pipeline. So it was very successful. And I think there was a, a really deeper understanding at that point, and hopefully it will continue, of the role of Indigenous peoples and to support their rights. More recently, the Convention on Biological Diversity, also a UN body that held their meetings in Montreal, I guess it was about a year and a half ago. I might have that date wrong, but their last meeting really centered Indigenous rights and recognized how important it was to include Indigenous peoples in negotiations and in terms of also their role in environmental policy making. Now, all that said, it's a huge struggle. I mean, we have been involved in the fight to stop Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline. We're currently involved in stopping Line 5 pipeline. We're uh, partnering with Indigenous peoples in these fights. And it hasn't gotten better. They have not given consent and these pipelines are going through. So it's very, very difficult when it comes to the fossil fuel industry and, and the extractive industries in general who just keep barreling ahead. Where I do have a lot of hope and I do see real progress is the awareness of Indigenous peoples, their knowledge, um, the respect for Indigenous peoples in every sphere of society is changing, even in Hollywood, not that that's everything, but narrative does matter. So all these different reasons, and we have Deb Holland, who is in office now in this administration. So I do think it's changing and it needs to change more. I would also make one more point, which is I'm very excited about the land back movement that is happening in Canada and the United States, where we're seeing substantial amounts of land being returned to Indigenous peoples, giving back their land that they already had. So it's sort of not exactly as well represented as it could be, because I think land back is important as, as a concept and statement because it was already their land. So I like this of land back. And some of it is being given, some of it is being purchased, but there's all different kinds of mechanisms for land going back into the hands of, of the traditional stewards of these lands. And I think that's very exciting and fairly new and is a really powerful, hopeful thing that we can look towards. One example I wanted to bring up from our local environment here in Santa Cruz County is the San Vicente Redwoods, which opened I think about a year and a month ago, it was December 2022. And that was the efforts of multiple land trusts and Redwood Forest Protection Leagues and things along these lines. But they involved the local Ohlone peoples and making decisions about how the land would be used and how these um, open spaces would be connected to provide corridors for things like the mountain lion to really survive and thrive in this environment when they have to cross things like major highways. <laughs> and ultimately, they're in the first stage of a development now. But after the craze of wildfires that hit the Santa Cruz area, you know, the forest is pretty damaged there. And then after that, we got some torrential downpours, which took down more trees that they had hoped would recover. And so what they are choosing to do with that land in its management is to involve the Ohlone people in the restoration, which I think is, it's both honors them and respects their understanding of the land in a, in a way that's different than the local residents who perhaps pay their taxes and, and live in the community here, including myself in Scotts Valley. So I'm, I'm happy to see these types of movements. I'm also 
encouraged that on every sign throughout the entire park, there's translation of the actual trail system is called in Ohlone with markers on how to pronounce it and things like that. And I realize this is small, but it's a marker of our willingness to make this more broadly a focus point so that our anybody who visits them understands that they're on Ohlone land. And that is something that, frankly, most people in our local area didn't have common knowledge of until they started hearing things like open ceremonies. And people would say, oh, I want to acknowledge the land that we're on is Ohlone land and, and along those lines. So I think you're right that the culture is shifting in a more positive direction and one that respects the history, the true history of the land that we're on. When I invited Paul Hawken on to talk about his work, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, his first call to action for people was to know where they live. He said, you know, know where you live, know the land you're on, know its history. And I didn't know at the moment that he said that, that I lived on Ohlone land. I thought that was Palo Alto. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked into it to get a deeper understanding of the land that I live on. It's not just a once dairy that, yeah, it used to be a dairy area after it was Ohlone. And yeah, there is a stock pond that was there partially to water the cattle, but it was also naturally there before. It's called a stock pond, but it probably had an Ohlone name. And so understanding that we have essentially co-opted this space without acknowledgement is something that's hard for a lot of people to do. Anyway, that's kind of my bigger, broader perspective on it. And I'm just so appreciative that you're doing that work through your book and through your hard work with We Can. One of the questions I had before we dig more into your book, which is separated into five parts that I think is really well organized and makes it easy to digest too and kind of break it apart um, as you have time to spend deeply in its pages. I personally found that sometimes I had to pause because you're reading about things that fun to look at, like environmentalists in South America who are murdered for their work. You know, this is the reality in some cases. And, and so I guess I just wanted to ask with this important work you're doing with We Can, how can people like myself and those that are listening get involved with your efforts? Well, the simple part is everyone is welcome to participate by going to our website at www.wecan.wecan and then the word international spelled out.org, wecaninternational.org and sign up for a newsletter because we often do webinars or have ways to participate or join calls to action we're engaged in. So there's a lot of activity there. And like everyone, we use a lot of social media. So we are, we are an X, we are on Instagram, we are on Facebook. So that's another way to kind of get more immediate responses about what our activities are and learn about what we're doing. So those are just ways to create connectivity for anyone who's interested. And we do run different campaigns. And so people are always engaged in that and sign on letters. I mean, we, we do a lot of advocacy in the United States, but also globally in different regions. I think that the most important thing beyond sort of those the very straightforward thing is I really like to encourage people to think about, you know, people I think say this in different ways, but I, I believe it to truly be a way that works well is how can I, how can you really find what you're passionate about and deeply taking that time to consider what is the state of the world? What is the state of my community? 
what is going on and being really informed both socially and ecologically. And what am I passionate about changing? Because we're at a true crisis moment between the climate crisis, what is going on in Gaza and different wars around the world, what is going on with environmental degradation and biodiversity loss and species loss. And we know the list, which are systems, which I get into in the book based on colonization, racism, patriarchy, and our economic frameworks based on endless economic growth. So I think it's very important to get educated about how we got into this moment so that we can be best informed how to act with more knowledge and really find out where is our heart taking us? What do we feel passionate about? What is the earth calling us to do? Because that's where we're going to have the energy to add in our peace and I view it as an ecosystem of activities where none of us are resolving these things on our own. We can't as part of an ecosystem, a coalition of groups and entities working all over the world for this great transformation time we're in. We're in a huge revolutionary moment in the story of humanity with the earth. And so the biggest thing is get involved, which means finding your passion, your love, what connects you to the earth and what the earth is calling you to do, what your community needs and plugging in there and finding allies because no one can do it on our own. There's way too much grief, way too much hardship to do this on our own. So finding out who we can be with and shares these same passion and interests and rolling up our sleeves and getting involved is so key. And doing this locally, doing this in our own communities, doing this nationally or globally, whatever you're called to do. But the one thing that we can't do is wait or not engage. It's an all hands on deck moment. And Mother Earth through fires and floods and droughts and everything else is making it perfectly clear that this is our moment and we need to act. We can act now and we really must act now. And so that would be what I would really share with people is how to engage with what you're passionate about because there's so much that needs to be done. I think that you're heading me right towards my next question, which has to do with, in part one, you cover worldviews and climate justice. In part two, you talk a lot about Dakota's, Dakota Access Pipeline and our failures there. The fact that we really need to consider Mother Earth as a stakeholder in every decision and that Indigenous people are central to that conversation as well. In part three, you're diving into things like the weekend forestry projects. But all along the way here, I'm hearing this message throughout that essentially our capitalistic system today, it doesn't equal and does not support movement to clean energy and carbon capture and living in a more sustainable, balanced way. So how? do you suggest that we get there? Because it's such a big leap. I mean, even if it is frame by frame and week by week, like what are the, the big movements we can push collectively? How do we do this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, sort of like how I view it visually is this is where we are now in these complex systems of oppression that we've been living in for a very long time and the need to actually look at the root causes because it's sort of like if a doctor looks at you they need to understand the ailment before they can prescribe what to do so we we need to take a little bit of time in the root causes which i delve into in the book so we have an understanding of where we've come from i think many of us have an, a sense of where we want to be living we want to live in a just and healthy 
equitable world that's peaceful and integrated with the land and being in harmony with nature. And it doesn't have to be perfect or a utopia, but my goodness, we could be living so much better than we are now. And then there's a space in between. And that's for me where your question lands is where is this roadway between here and there, which is what I really try to address throughout the book is what is that pathway? So I'm going to give a few examples. So we're not talking abstractly. A couple of things that I'm really excited about engaged in is one, I'm really honored to be on the steering committee of something called the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty, which you had mentioned. And it's very exciting because our organization for over a decade has been engaged in the UN climate talks that happen annually. And that's very important work. A lot of it has to do with how countries are going to reduce their carbon emissions, which is a very important part of this process of de-escalating the climate crisis. And many other things are discussed there, which is a whole world of what is actually going on at the UNFCCC COPs, which is a whole world of conversation. And this fossil fuel treaty is designed to be really a companion piece to that because it directly talks about ending the era of fossil fuels and how we can have a mechanism, an instrument that all governments can engage in for that one topic, which is the topic that is actually what's driving the climate crisis, fossil fuels. And so very recently, um, you know, last month I was at the COP in Dubai. It was very exciting. Um, you had mentioned Zipporah Berman, who really initiated this. It is based on the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. So like there's a precedent for how this could work with countries. And when we were there, new countries signed on. There are now 12 countries who are endorsing this treaty. I was very excited, particularly about Colombia endorsing and the president of Colombia at a very high level event in Dubai gave just a gorgeous, eloquent speech about how we need to get off of fossil fuels and the complexity of it for a country like his, which is a fossil fuel producing country and the courage and bravery to get out there and realize that you're going to also be, in essence, interfering with your own economy when you do, because our economies are based on fossil fuels. But that courage was just so inspiring and other countries are signing on. So it's a something I'm very excited about, very engaged in as an organization, and you know it's continued to grow throughout the year. And then something else that Weekend has been engaged in for a very long time is a global alliance for rights of nature. I'm on the executive committee. And this is the idea that there should be not only human rights, but the rights of nature. And right now in our legal systems, nature is viewed as property. And as a result, a river or a forest or a mountain cannot be represented as itself in the court of law. It has to be under the ownership of a human to then be somebody's property. So it makes it very difficult to protect an ecosystem. And what rights of nature law does is it really changes the entire DNA of our current forms of environmental laws and says, no, nature needs to be a rights-bearing entity all on its own. So you could present a river or a forest in a court of law. And so I'm very excited about this. And, you know, just in contrast, like environmental laws are primarily regulatory laws and they do just that. They regulate how much harm we can do to the environment, but they don't actually stop it. And rights of nature is actually about stopping the harm entirely. And it's not just form of earth jurisprudence or earth philosophy, but it's actually been put into action in 2008. Ecuador became the first country in the world 
to have rights of nature put into the constitution. And since then, there's been several cases, one in Ecuador, using rights of nature laws to protect rivers. Here in the United States, there's like three dozen cases now that have been won, ordinances that have been passed to stop fracking in communities. So there, it's happening more at the local level versus at the national level. And it's quite exciting because it demands that the river or the forest or whatever part of the ecosystem we're talking about has the right to thrive and be healthy and flourish just like humans. And I'll give one last example because it, it really touched me. This, this is literally one of the fastest growing earth jurisprudence movements in the world. Even the United Nations Secretary General said this is a hugely fast growing movement. We're seeing in Colombia, they passed rights of nature around the Amazon rainforest. We're seeing rivers around the world being protected under rights of nature laws. And I had the honor several years ago of going with um, a wonderful partner organization, Movement Rights, to go to New Zealand. And we went there because the Maori people for over 100 years have been fighting to protect the Wanganui River amongst other parts of their traditional territories and land, again, because of colonization and their lands being taken from them. And they view the Wanganui River as their ancestor, as their living ancestor, their living relative. And they fought long and hard with New Zealand government. And finally, some years ago, very recently, won a settlement in which there's a representative from the New Zealand government and a representative from the Wanganui River who are custodians and guardians of the river, not owners of the river, and that the river is treated under a personhood law, which is sort of in this umbrella of Mother Earth laws or rights of nature laws. And so no harm can come to the river because it has personhood, just like a human being. And you can exercise those rights. And I was very moved to go there, to be on a fact-finding mission, to learn more about this, the Wanganui River, and was able to go with some of the Maori elders to meet the river in a very beautiful and sacred way and hear their songs. And one of the elder women uh, took my hand over by the river and said, you know, we have a saying, I am the river and the river is me. I am the river and the river is me. And it touched me so much because in that moment, the whole idea of really understanding the animacy of nature and the web of life being alive, like my body is water, primarily water. Our human bodies are primarily water. Literally the river and I are together. I am the river and the river is me. And how we can change our worldviews, which is sort of what I was you know, getting at in my book is going upstream from a lot of these day-to-day -day fights we are challenged with to see how did we get into these ideas that were separated from nature? How did we get into these ideas of colonization? How did we get into these ideas of patriarchy and racism? And how can we dismantle them? And part of it for me is the, also the healing of how we regenerate our relationship with nature and understand that we are part and particle of the web of life. And this rights of nature movement, I think, is very positive in helping us to not re not only reorient our laws, but our cultural understanding of our place in nature. You know, I am reminded of an interview I did with Maya Van Rossum about the Green Amendments and her work around that. She's come on this podcast now twice to discuss some of those legal battles. And for instance, when some young people from Montana sued because they felt like they had a right to a clean environment and that had been robbed of them. And so we see these movements where 
you literally have a green amendment on the books as with the state of Montana, which was what allowed this to kind of come through in the first place. So I'm encouraged by that in the, these United States, even when it seems like we're up against an incredible battle. I'm also encouraged by young activists who are just willing to fight that fight and file that lawsuit when it's needed, because it will take all of us willing to make these big steps to really get that change to just happen and become endemic in our culture. So I'm so pleased by this conversation. You really have highlighted so much of what is in chapter 12, which you begged me to read before we had this conversation. And I have to say, I read most of each section. I just frankly put it down when I started to read things, some of which were really alarming. Like I think this is page 227. And I know this is an unedited pre-release copy, so that might have changed. But you talked about how many land defenders have been murdered. And I was not aware that literally an average of four people per week since the Paris Agreement was put in place had lost their lives to this climate fight. And I think that I am somebody who, um, as much as I fight that fight from my home and in my local community, if I knew I were putting my life on the line, these people are heroes. And to only hear about that in sometimes in the fiction works I'm reading, because in some of these eco-fiction novels, they'll depict some of these individuals in a, in a fictional character. They'll depict some of the struggles. I recently had interviewed George Paxinos, who's a neuroscientist, a PhD, right? He wrote a book called A River Divided about the climate struggle. That episode just aired the week that we're recording this show. And he talks about that, people being killed in the Amazon for trying to protect the river there or trying to protect the forest. And it's seemingly packaged as an accident when they're felling a tree or something to that effect. But because people are unwilling to leave and they're fighting for their environment. I, I think that story needs to be told more. And in a way, I was surprised to read it in this, in this book. And I'm also so happy you included it, as sad as it made me, because I want to spend a moment to honor those individuals who have given the ultimate cost for their beliefs. I think that is so powerful. And I really wish that more people knew about it. So I really hope that my audience today, listening to or watching this podcast on YouTube, will pick up a book of the story in our bones, how worldviews and climate justice can remake a world in crisis. Hospital Lake, this has been an incredible interview. I want to ask just a couple more questions. But really, before I get there, I like to ask my people I interview, if there was a question I haven't asked yet that you wish I had, you could ask and answer it or just start to leave us with some important closing thoughts. Sometimes this ends up in another question or two. I would really encourage all of us to understand since you brought up the topic of these land defenders, which I did want to honor in the book. So thank you for bringing that up and realize that while we're all collectively in a time of crisis all over the world, we're not in it evenly. And the threats to different people are not the same. And to be with the discomfort of that, especially as we're looking at indigenous peoples who are primarily the ones who are the land defenders being attacked to protect the last of the forest, the last of the waters, and black and brown communities who are experiencing the worst impacts of extractive industries, that it is a time we need to look at uncomfortable topics like white supremacy, 
sacrifice areas, sacrifice zones, and the inequality that underlies a lot of these crises we're in. So as an example, if there were no sacrifice people or sacrifice zones, there would not be places a lot of this dirty energy or dirty mining could take place. If we value everyone's life equally and nature equally, it really changes our mindset about how and where we can do activities that don't harm anyone and don't harm the earth. And so this is something that we all need to wrestle with and not be in a place of judgment. I don't think that serves us, but to be in a place of being very open-minded and yes, work with privilege. And if we have privilege, how can we use that privilege to serve those who don't? How can we use that privilege to serve the earth? It's a very delicate time. It's a very intense time, politically, ecologically, socially. And on the one hand, I think we need to really embrace the challenge of this moment, our responsibility in the moment, have a historical analysis of this moment, have those hard conversations and keep our hearts and minds open and support each other in those conversations. While at the same time, recognizing that there is justice, there is love, there is reciprocity, there is restoration. And I would just close with a really short story, if that's okay, because that word restoration just made me think of it. Projects I'm really excited about is that we've had the honor for the last nine years to work with Nima Namadamu, who's an amazing Congolese woman who lives in the DR Congo. And we have been reforesting these hugely damaged lands through slash and burn techniques and also because of environmental degradation. In this process, it has been engaging 700 women to reforest this area. And you know, now nine years later, we've planted hundreds of thousands of trees and it's 25% of the trees are for human use. So for their food and shelter and medicines and 75% of the trees are to rewild the land. And all these years later, we're restoring this forest. And now because 25% of the trees are old enough and have grown to the point where the people and the community there, there can use them, they're no longer, no longer taking any from the, from the old growth forest. So we're protecting 1.6 million acres of old growth forest in the Otombe region of the Congo Basin, which is essential for climate mitigation. So by reforesting, we're protecting 1.6 million acres of land. We're reforesting, wilding, rewilding 75% of the trees. And then this beautiful thing happened just the last two years, which is we've planted enough trees, something unexpected happened quickly, which is we've brought back the rain. Mother Earth is responding and bringing back the rain. And as a result, now there's all these, we call them wild nurseries. So not only are the, the, the nurseries we're having uh, replanting seed saplings, the whole forest is being regenerated by nature because the rains have been brought back. And so there's this beautiful co-creation going on that has just brought so much hope to me. And also that the women are leading this project and it's changing the cultural norm of the patriarchy in their communities of women leading the way and bringing this beautiful solution and restoration to their community and food and all the things that they need for, for living. Yeah, so I wanted just to bring that forward because in the midst of truly terrific horrors from Gaza to Standing Rock to Sudan, we could go on, 
we can create the world we want if we work together and if we work in community and we listen to frontline leaders and we really center indigenous and black and brown women specifically, I think we really have a way through a very small keyhole if we listen up. Well, I can't think of a better note to end this on. I want to thank you so much for your time, Osprey Oil Lake, and for writing this work. Ask my audience if you want to learn more about the We Can Reforestation Project that is detailed in part three, I believe starting around page 185. So, you know, I've got my note card here and I keep looking down and going, yes, I meant to bring that up. Amazing. So for those that are listening, you can, of course, visit our show notes on any podcast platform and click the direct links to find out more about Osprey Oriel Lake. I also will include complete transcripts on our podcast page and blog page for this episode and direct links to other episodes that we've touched on. Do you have any final words, Osprey Oriel? Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for the beautiful work you're doing. And I just really want to encourage people to engage. Let's all engage together. We can do this collectively together. Here, here. Thank you so much again. As already stated, I will be sure to include links to everywhere you can learn more about Osprey Oriel Link with show notes. She's active in social medias, as she had mentioned, as well as her own website and now the release of this new book, which is broadly available. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. Those five-star ratings and written reviews help us climb the charts so that our podcast can reach more people. Thank you, listeners, all of you, all and watchers too on YouTube, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even transform our worldviews fight for climate justice, and remake our world. We just must do it together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 